Hey, agility addicts, or soon to become one, welcome to Startline Podcast. I'm your host, Kara Armour, and I am here to edutain you about the world of dog agility. Join me as I spend time interviewing special guests, share my journey, successes, laughs, and failures. We all start somewhere, and we all end up on a start line. My hope is to help you grow in the sport we all love. Season 2, Episode 41. Ready? Hey, agility addicts. This episode, I want to discuss playing the long game. I feel like it's something that just in the past couple years, I've really understood and embraced, and I wish I had done so earlier, at least understood the concept of it. I've always known about the long game. I'll get into that. But the past couple of weekends, I've been paying close attention to our Stress for Success seminar attendees, as well as really looking at my own journey with my young two-year-old. I truly started to appreciate and see the benefit of playing the long game. The seminar was over six months ago, and those that put in the time and effort are really now starting to see the true long-term benefits. And let me tell you, even though I was a presenter, I learned so much from that from the attendees and, of course, from Noreen Bennett. But that seminar really kind of tied in a neat package for me, this idea of really focusing on the future. And let me tell you, (laughs) I'm an impulsive, quickest way to win thinker. This has not been an easy transition for me, but it was 100% necessary to reach the goals I wanted and continue to set for my team's future. So what do I mean by the long game? Playing the long game means, I know some of you are like, I know what this means, but what does it mean in terms of agility? It means making sacrifices now to reap benefits later. It means making sacrifices to stay committed to your goals, not just trying to manage or squeak by. It means avoiding instant gratification the cue, and focusing on building a foundation that will serve you well in the future. And that's key. If you haven't palled up with a long timer in the sport, then you may not have heard this or for some reason, if you avoid Facebook or your instructor hasn't said it, foundation matters. If it's not solid, your journey will be bumpy or even crumble. Much like a house, if it's built on a crap foundation, then a storm, like stress, could come and ruin all of it. Houses, like training, should be able to weather certain stressors thrown at them because they have a solid foundation to stand on, right? That's that's why we spend so much time building them. If they don't, then you have little to rebuild or renovate, right? They're just, they're gone. So you're left starting over. I've been there. <laughs> Are there a lucky few that can get by? Yep, absolutely. 100%. Sure. I, I've done that with Debbie. I'll talk about that a little bit more too. But, you know, you can learn coping mechanisms or just... I learned to lower my goals, but those were survival techniques. They're not growth opportunities because there were holes in my foundation. So what are some examples of the long game versus a short game? Playing the long game means paying a small price today to make tomorrow easier. And by tomorrow, I actually mean next month or maybe six months from now or a year. The best example in terms of agility would be throwing a cue for the benefit of your dog's happiness or even to avoid a skill you do not feel is trial ready or running by an obstacle your dog can't do in that moment. These are all long-term putting money in the good bank account. The opposite of this would be trying to cue when your dog slows down, sniffs, jumps on the judge, ring crews, or rolls, but you keep trying. You get them back for an obstacle or two and then off again they go. But much like my, sorry, this was much like my years with the Walter Show. Like that's what the Walter Show looked like, right? He would slow down, sniff, go visit ring crew, 
do the Walter show. And I'd scream and I'd get him back and try again. And sometimes we would squeak by and sometimes we wouldn't. But I wasn't really accomplishing anything. That was very short-sighted and very short-term of me. Another example, this could be queuing the weave poles. They get in, they come out, you stop, you make them try again. Or they completely avoid the seesaw or A-frame and you know reward market. You're like, uh-oh, what happened? Or, oh, what? you know, the, the dreaded, oh, I hate the sigh. Ugh. I, I, sorry, but I do yell at my students all the time. If they sigh, I make them pay the dog because usually the mistake that occurred was them. We'll get into that later. But anyways, don't know reward mark um, and don't bring them back and beg them to do it in a trial, right? We can tackle all of that in training and building that foundation and really putting in the, you know, the grout between the cement or that's not the proper word, but you know what I mean. My point being, don't just try and get get it done in that situation because you could be short-sighted and causing more harm than good but i get it this is not this is not a do not do this episode trust me this is not this is a best practices episode so less people suffer like i did because i've been there done that episode i've been impulsive and i have played the long game i have watched others do the same and time will always be on your side i promise okay i can hear it and I say it almost daily with my 10-year-old dog, but their lives are so short. Yep, they are. But to make the best of your time in the ring with them, spend more time investing in the long game of mental happiness and true foundational understanding of the game. For both you and the dog, right? If you're new to this, there's so much physical knowledge and mental knowledge that you yourself have to learn. Without those, you will have the same lifespan with them, but much more disappointment. Trust me, it's not worth it right? They live this finite amount of time and you can either do it suffering, having lots of NQs, having holes in your foundations, foundation, not progressing the way that you feel that you should, or you can put time up front into the long game so that your, your success in the future has a better thing to rest on. <laughs> I'm missing some words today. Anyways. I'll, I'll just, I'll never forget. So here's just some examples. And guys, this is coming, this is coming from me. I've been there. I turned to my trainer when I was trying to get Walter ready for invitationals. And he, due to a lack of solid foundation, had little to no understanding of the dog walk contact criteria. My trainer said to stop trialing, don't go to invites and go back to the plank and mat work. Basically start over. I thought I could combine the two. Go back to basics and keep trialing because I had ring stress to work through. Guess what he did at invitationals? Yep. This is the second time, second time invitations. First time he actually did pretty well. Blew his contact, but he did pretty well. But he blew his dog walk contact the second year and actually had terrible ring stress. He'd gotten worse. I attribute this to not listening to my trainer and short-sightedly trying to just manage the situation. We did come up with a Band-Aid, and I think that, and that was, <laughs> I would pretend to just reach into my pocket and throw a cookie. And this, that, that little technique, it works sometimes. Didn't work at invitationals. It worked for all the other trials to get us there and make me feel better. But I was just lying to my dog. And look what it got me. Long term, nothing. Nothing. I lied to my dog. Try not to lie to your dog. At least intentionally. Fake cookie tosses like I did, pretending to place a target at the bottom of a contact, or just run or just not running in a trial like you would in training. I, I know we 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 might not be conscious of that. But I watch a lot of us, I take classes with several people, and they don't run exactly how they do in trials versus training. So now we're just being different to our dog. And of course, they're like, why? It's in this trial environment. But we do also unintentionally lie. 
I unintentionally lie to my dogs all the time. My poor handling, I over-rotate in a front, I don't close my shoulder, I don't cue discrimination, I didn't decel in time for a turn cue, lots of other things. These are handling faults that send our dogs off course and they are lies to our dogs, but only if we point them out, right? I can lie and just be like, oh, you didn't see that. Let's keep going, right? You might've taken that tunnel. And I do this all the time with Wendy. She'll take a wrong course because of my late handling and I'll have to just come up with another course quickly so she can't figure it out. It's just when we lie to them, we lose their trust, right? We're trying so hard to gain that. Trust us to get you around the course. And if I lie to you, well, I break that trust. And if you do accidentally lie or mess up in your handling, don't let them figure it out. Keep running. They love motion, right? Run around the ring screaming, if it, you know, happily, like, yeah. Have them come and get you, right? Play a game of chase if you're just completely lost. I've done that. I've let my dog chase me completely out of the ring. And I made it fun because I could not fix. My mistake was so bad, it didn't lead to a line that I could fix. So, But our dog's are trusting us to get them around the ring. Like that's, they're following us. You know, I know a lot of times they're ahead, but they're following our lead. So, you know, and the ultimate goal is they follow our lead so they can get the reward, which is their reinforcement for the hundreds of things they did correctly in the ring, right? Most of the steps that they take and most of the things that they do are correct. Keeping those bars up, every single bar, hitting the contacts when they do, taking the obstacle that we asked. They do so many things right they do way more things correctly than they do incorrectly but we need to be trusting their training and thus them and if we can't trust the training if it's not where it should be then we know that we have holes in our foundations if you can't trust your training stop trying to get what you want in trials without having it 110 percent in training right that doesn't mean stop trialing i'll discuss that you can use trials as training opportunities wait I can hear it. But my dog does the dog walk reliably in training. Right, but they aren't or they can't in trials. That means under those conditions, whether they are sensitive to the environment, the actual obstacle itself, the situation, you, or whatever, their, found, their foundation has not led them to succeed in that trial. So now you need to start digging. Watch your videos from trials. Compare them to class. Is it the environment? Is it the environment that is different? And you need to work on environmental or general stressors? Or could there be a hole in the foundation? Is your basement leaking? My basement leaked for years with Debbie and Walter. And to be honest, it still leaks with Debbie. Our foundation was built on scaffolding, if we're lucky. I mean, literally mud and twigs. <laughs> I swore never to do that with Wendy. I swore. I was like, okay, I'm on my, technically my fourth, fifth agility dog. Uh, my first one wouldn't do the seesaw. We never were able to compete. And I didn't know what to do to get him over it. I was just told he'll never do it. And I got Debbie. And, well, she had a seesaw break on her, but she ended up doing the seesaw. And anyways, regardless, <laughs> I brought, when I brought Wendy out to trials early, I only did this because I had good mentors to keep me in check to not go for the cue, but rather use trials to train for future trials, Right. I excitedly was like, oh, she seems pretty good in training, right? But she had not been exposed to a trial environment other than, you know, coming and creating with us and watching. And so how do you learn how your dog functions under the stress of a trial environment? You put them in a trial, right? And a little bit of that of me wanted that cue. And a whole lot of me, thankfully, was listening to my mentors that were like, hey, you know, 
lower your expectations, consider this training, but you're really going to use this as information, information gathering to see where she is at this particular time and how she handles a trial. And again, trials are fantastic training opportunities. We did okay, but when we first started off, I'm pretty sure our start line stress was pretty, pretty much right there. You know, my start line was very different from when it was in training where it, you know, in training it changes every single week. And in trials, we, where we trial, it was always in the same place. And so I had a lot of st- a start line stress that popped up. And I trained for other stress in training. And then to combat it in trials, I would do happy loops, right? So I did what I could at the start line. If she would scratch or whatever, I would try and take off. I wouldn't do lead outs. I, I kind of managed that a little bit, which wasn't great. But I decided, okay, if I could just get her off the line and chase me and put weight in that and then do a loop, right? I didn't care about the course at this point. I wanted something very easy, so simple that she could do it. And judges were blowing whistles left and right, but we were running fast and happy, and that was money in that good bank account I talk about. But not a trial went by, not a trial went by that I didn't think in the little back of my head, could we have queued? She seemed a little less stressy today. Could I, could I have run that? My impulsive, immediate satisfaction brain wouldn't shut up. Thankfully, I overpowered it, but it's hard. I'm telling you guys, I get it. It's super hard to throw the cue, especially when you think you've made progress. Sometimes right when you think you've made progress, the best thing to do is to keep doing what you're doing instead of try and cue. Sometimes do an extra loop or two before you really start to go for that that cue. Or try and do one or two challenges the course presents and then get out of the ring. I started to add challenges. Instead of just happy loops, I would do a happy loop with this what I thought was a tough front cross for her or something I would add in. And then when I felt those were going well, I felt like we were able to then start trying for the cue, but still not a great mentality to get in with a very young dog who has a good foundation, but her foundation is still in training. She, we were not completely past foundation. I don't have lateral pulls off the dog walk yet. There's a lot of little bits and pieces that I do not have that I feel rock solid that I could be presented with almost any course and say, yep, my training has caused me or allowed us the ability to handle this. I am not there. But I know the more I put into trial stability now, along with foundation, the longer I will have a more consistent dog. I tripped over short-sighted hurdles with Debbie nearly the entire journey, the entire way. That dog's incredible because we took our Swiss cheese training, so imagine Swiss cheese, and patched it over the years. So I just kept putting Swiss cheese over Swiss cheese over Swiss cheese. If you pile enough pieces together, they cover up all the holes. However, if you stood on those, they'd be weak spots. And I still very much have weak spots. I regret what I could have done sooner had I spent more time training what I didn't have, right? And to defend myself, much of this I didn't know. Some is human physiology. Get the cue because that is my gratification. And some of it was I just didn't know what I didn't have until I tried and learned. And so that's that's where I get it with a lot of you. I understand that, especially if this is your novice A dog, you know, playing this long game, you don't necessarily know all of the game yet. You don't know the rules. You don't know the consequences. You don't know the circumstances. And I'm hoping to just shed a little bit of light on that so that when you hear these, for lack of a better word, old timers saying things to you or experienced handlers that that your mind remains open and not just oh they don't understand my journey each journey is specific and and separate and um but but they're all we've all kind of been on a journey and we can see things 
So just keep that open mind. And I know for some of this, this won't make sense. But I just, I don't, I myself feel a little stuck in purgatory. And that's why I want to do this episode. I know what I know, and I still have more to learn. But I can't seem to grab enough others to get in this boat with me. I watch the same struggles like weekend after weekend. And I feel like I have the same conversations. And I went through, I, I went through this with others. And I asked myself, is this the way it has to be? Right? Like, does it have to be this way? Is this just everybody has to go through their, their own trials and tribulations? And to a degree, yes. But then I was like, no. No, it doesn't always have to be this way. Our brains and competitive nature just get in the way. We have to train smarter and longer to get faster, better results. I'm going to repeat that. We have to train smarter and longer to get faster, better results. That's the long game. Time is on your side. Use it to your advantage. All right. So even if you have that super smart dog, we all do. You still need time. You need what's reinforcement history is reinforcing the behavior, rewarding a behavior, getting that reinforced over time. Reinforcement history takes time. You can't cheat that system. They need miles in the ring and on the equipment to master skills and read you, right? I could go have a successful, I did actually today because I wanted to work on my lateral distance or lateral pull from my dog walk and Wendy did actually pretty well today. I reinforced it. I reinforced it. But that is the tip of the iceberg. That is that is the beginning of, we've done it a few times, but it is not a foundational skill I would call reliable by any stretch of the imagination. I do not feel in a trial environment it would be fair to do what I do in training because we have not had the reinforcement history there to really cement that behavior. It just takes time. Things like that. So when I talk about them needing those miles in the ring, and miles on the equipment to master those skills. This is leading to, because we do lack some of that, right? If our foundation training isn't as solid or we just haven't trained a lot, we just train once a week. I see a lot of management happening. Fear they will jump the contact so the handler leans in and points, which oddly enough adds pressure and an obstacle, another obstacle for the dog to leap over. Your finger, your arm, your body bent over. You just pushed them off the contact. So now they're going to jump the contact and your finger. Okay, guys, and I don't mean to be having that attitude. I've done this. I've done this. I have I have the best pictures of me in Maine literally pointing to the contact. And both Debbie and Walter, I think I made a joke about it. Oh, mother and son, they're, they, you know, same thing, same behavior. That was me. I put my finger down on that contact and they both leapt over it. Were they likely to leap their contact anyways? Yes, because they didn't know the criteria. But you add that finger in there and they just got great height. I mean, they started pretty high up. So again, I don't I, I don't want to have that attitude of don't do this. I'm just saying, guys, from experience, try to avoid this. The other thing, again, this is me. The handler that cramps their dogs in the weaves, I, I would try to use all of my body to keep the dog in there. When in reality... I was just pushing them out, right? In training, I would be a mile away or ahead or behind or beside or I was adding, adding lateral distance. And in trials, I get right up in their business and they're like, ew, and they're coming out. The handler never drives to the table so that their dog knows where they're going to go, right? I always tell my students, don't meet your dog for dinner at the dinner table. You wouldn't a jump. You wouldn't meet your dog in the middle of the bar. You would send them to the jump. Send them to the table. When you meet our dogs... At the tribal try to, our dogs run circles around the table. 
right? Because they, they're like, you're in my way. And that's, I mean, we're lucky that we have, I believe, three sides. And as long as the dog gets on that third plane, um, you know, it's not considered a table fault. But otherwise, if they're trying to get on the front of that table, the AKC are, is pretty generous about allowing us the approach to the table. But just don't, you know, don't do those things. That's very short-sighted. And they all describe me. I've done each one of these many times. And I learned over time that they're not, they're, they're hurting my game right? They're, they're, they're setbacks. What does this long-term long game look like, particularly in those instances that I described? So obviously staying out of your dog's way and trusting they hit the contact, right? If they don't, or they can't, we either have stress or we, we need to reevaluate our, our, their knowledge of the criteria. Staying as far away from them in the weaves as you can or would in training, right? Treat the weaves and this you know, has to hit home. And I had some great success with it this past weekend. I deceled, let my dog load, she got in, and then I ran ahead like I would do in training. And I was pretty far away, right? That's, I trusted my training because we'd had a lot of miles in the ring or the miles so far on weave poles. I would, I would go as far as to say that I have a decent foundation on weave poles, not on lateral poles from dog walk contacts. Yes, on straight approach dog walk contacts, but I still have a lot more to go. Another example would be cue the table and send them like you would to a jump. You would never head over to that center of that table like I talked about or to the center of a jump. So don't do it to the table. The long game would be you doing nothing if they broke that contact or pop those weave poles. You move forward like nothing happened, especially, especially for the sensitive dog, right? Why make a thing out of something in an already stressful environment? The long game would have you watching that run and going back to training and seeing if it was foundational, handling, or what the heck was it? Have someone else watch your video too if you can't figure it out. The long game is creating an action plan to fix what went wrong and not like I did, come up with a Band-Aid. Band-Aids just cover up issues. They don't heal them. Go with me on that because I know you could argue about how Band-Aids now help heal with, you know, their first aid ointment in them but band-aids are band-aids they're just they cover up a boo-boo all right so your action plan might be stressing out the table in training so when your dog gets to a trial they see an unencumbered table that looks easy to get on and stay on right right it it, the table's a thing practice sending them to the table let's let's try that so analyze your start line analyze your start line behavior in training versus trial Add weird, maybe wet services under your weaves so your dog learns to weave no matter what the strangeness. Then you get to a trial and they are not icky, right? A lot of this was all in the solutions to stress. And I know not all of this is stress. Some of your dogs just really can be foundational, right? And and so don't get hung up that your dog is stressed if they're not doing the table in a trial. Was it stress? Was it your position? Was it, wow, we haven't had the table out in a couple months and I don't feel like my dog has a good foundation on the table, right? Really analyze what's going on there, right? Because then over time, you'll strengthen the behavior you want. Stop trying to just get the behavior you want in the moment. So over time, you'll strengthen the behavior you want. Stop trying to get the behavior in that moment. That bears repeating. Training behavior takes time right? This reinforcement history. Agility does seem to take forever, but it's so multifaceted. I could teach several six-week sessions on handling alone, just without the humans, right? Or without the dogs. (laughs) Yes, the humans. Just borrow well-trained dogs. I would love to borrow well-trained dogs and take new handlers and teach them footwork, the importance of shoulders, speed, the way your feet point, the timing of your fronts and blinds and rears and your positioning. 
I would love to do that. I, I think because we have to learn so much alongside of our dog and to teach our dog at the same time, that really complica- complicates it. It's crazy that we, we really do learn how to t- move our bodies and train them on obstacles and move their bodies. There's just, there's a lot to learn in a short amount of time. I always tell people, if you have a brand new dog, you know, you're looking at two years and that's two years for them to be confident and you to be confident, right? And even then, I might've been ready to trial and my dog might've been pretty good, but my skills after only two years of agility, they're still growing now. I'm still improving now, 10 years in. So just... Keep that in mind when you're considering all of this. Again, the long game. I know it's hard to focus on, but it's it's really worth it. And then also just don't be dismayed that agility is the long game, right? Be happy that you get that long time to play with them. Because even though you're putting in those miles, you're putting in those miles still with your best friend beside you, right? I had a small breakthrough in class for my own self, self-esteem because I'm constantly always beating myself up. I always feel like I don't train enough. And I feel like my foundation is still weak with Wendy, although better than my other dogs. It still has holes. And it definitely does. But last week, Wendy had great dog walk contacts in class. And of course, we ran. I was super happy with them. My instructor was happy with them. Then I was setting bars, and she was out with me. She was just on leash meandering around. And I sent her over the dog walk because we had to walk by to get out of the ring. And she leapt off the contact. And I was like, hmm, let's try that again. I took the leash off, and I just did the contact. I was like, dog walk. And, my, and she did the same thing. She blew the contact. And my dog walker was kind of, or my instructor was kind enough to remind me in the context of a sequence, Wendy does know the criteria of the dog walk, but I took it out of sequence, which just reminds me, I don't have enough reinforcement history. I started off just taking the dog walk out of context. Then I build a context around it. And that is what I've reinforced the most lately, right? We've always done at least an obstacle before and after the dog walk. I've stopped rewarding directly at the dog walk contact, whether she gets it or not, because I wanted to create these chains of behaviors and add value to the sequence. She did the right behavior. She did the right behavior and took a jump and got on the table. Great. I'm going to reward that. But I started to take it out of context again, which I haven't done in a while. So it was a different picture for her. So she broke, right? I thought just thought it was super nice of my instructor to remind me that I had taken it out of context, that it wasn't just a hole in my training. Although certainly a weak spot, you should be able to take that out of context or in context. That just means that it's not 100% reliable, which I know. So anyways, not that our dogs shouldn't be able to perform obstacles out of context, but Wendy's just two, right? So like I mentioned before, she just hasn't had that time. I spent the last year putting that dog walk in certain contexts. To kind of summarize all of this, sometimes in order to get the details, you have to focus on the bigger picture. Agility training requires both. And I hope I've helped a few of you see that more clearly. It has taken me a good deal of time to embrace that lens, that view. I've heard it for years. I went through three dogs that I just didn't put the time into my foundation and had stress issues. So now I have two problems really affecting each other, right? If a dog has a strong foundation, they're less stressed or potentially less stressed in the ring based on the situation and the environment because those obstacles are understood to them, right? They they understand the job, the task, 
that's the most important thing. They understand their task in that situation. So just really keep that in mind. What you might just need more miles. You, you might be on the right track and just, I want to encourage you to keep going. If you have a, an issue, an obstacle problem, a start line problem, some kind of stress here, play that long game. Yes, you can work through stress at that obstacle, but also look at the bigger picture, the trial environment. What can you do in a trial to increase your success rate long term? And that's kind of the big thing. Don't lose sight of your big long term goals which require playing the long game. All right. On that note, I am hopefully going to edit this on the plane headed to Michigan, and I will get this out to you guys. And as always, I hope that you enjoy your week, your trials, and have great success. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you listen to. Hope you enjoy your agility journey.